called Forward. Did you guess that? Did you guess that? Yeah, yeah. We're, uh, we're talking about where we're going as a church a little bit. We're talking about where we're going in our lives. You know, because the reality is uh, there's always the question when a new pastor comes in. What are we doing? Where are we going? It, uh, it was mentioned this week. It was kind of funny. You know, being a pastor is, is really interesting. It's, people want to know, what are we doing? Where are we going? What's happening? You're new here. Where's the vision for the church, right? It's kind of like my, my favorite Far Side comic. You guys ever read the Far Side? Yeah, they don't. It's, it's my favorite Far Side comic. I don't know if you, can, if you can read this. It says, now calm down, Barbara. We haven't looked everywhere yet, and an elephant can't hide in here forever. It's kind of like the elephant in the room, isn't it? What are we going to do that's new? Did you find the elephant? It's behind the dresser in the corner. Behind the dresser in the corner. What are we going to do that's new? What are we going to do? Well, here's the funny thing. One of our staff members had a great revelation this week because some people had said, well, there's not really much new going on. But then she said these are the same people that they, they, it would kind of it'd kind of be a complaint that if you do too much new stuff, he's done too much new stuff. And she said, you got a fun job. you got a fun job. People are, happy, are mad if you do too much, and they're not happy if you, if you don't do anything, right? So, you know, it's kind of where do you go? What do you do? Well, the reality is God is shaping something in us. God is shaping something in our church. God is birthing something in us in this church. But how many of you know a baby isn't formed overnight? It takes time to develop and to grow. And I believe God is leading us somewhere. God is moving us in a direction. And so to address the elephant in the room of what's the vision? It's coming. It's growing. God is giving us definition and direction. Because I believe that God has the best days for Calvary in front of us. God has the best days. They're yet to come. We just have to give Him time and give Him space and give Him opportunity to speak to our hearts and speak to our minds. And so where's the vision? The vision's with God. The vision's with God. And we're praying for it. We're seeking clarity. There's certain things that we know we want to be. We want to be a church that loves the lost. We want to be a church that shares the gospel. We want to be a church that values the presence of God. We want to be a church that honors the Holy Spirit and is distinctly Pentecostal. We want to be a church that does all of these things. So those are some aspects of the vision that we know we're going to be. But you say, Pastor, what's the new stuff? What's the new stuff? It's coming. We just got to give God time to develop it. Give God time to birth it. Give God time to define it. So can you do that with me? Will you pray with me that God would give perfect clarity of thought? That you give God would give perfect clarity of direction? That's why we're talking about Nehemiah. Because Nehemiah helps us to understand a lot of how God births a vision. Of how, how God moves a church. How God builds and grows and does something. So will you pray with me as we go through this series, as we go through these sermons, will you pray with me for clarity? Will you pray for me, pray with me for God's vision, God's direction? Will you pray with me for that? Amen. Amen. So that's why we're doing it this summer, so we can talk about 
where God's leading us, how we're going to move forward. Because we don't want to go backwards, do we? We don't want to go backwards. We want to go forwards. And sometimes that means new things need time to develop. Time to develop. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been really disappointed? How, how, do, you, how do you deal with disappointment? I, want to, I was going to share a story. Uh, for my 40th birthday, for my 40th birthday, my, my, uh, my wife bought me a flying lesson. Does that sound good? That sounds wonderful. She bought me a flying lesson. Now, as you know, um, my church in Virginia, when, when I turned 40, we were going through a little transition. Uh, we, were, uh, we were searching for a pastor down there as well. Uh, and I was finishing my doctorate, still working on the, still writing a dissertation, so things were really busy. So it took us a little while to uh, find a, a good time to go up to Washington, D.C., because she bought it with a company up in D.C. We were going to make a little tour of the city, and uh, then we were going to go have fun, and I, I was going to do my flying lesson on Saturday morning. And so it took us a little while to get that scheduled. Uh, but we finally got it scheduled. We got it worked out. So we were going. We drove up the night before. So it was like a three-hour drive. Traffic. Listen, if you've ever driven to Washington D.C., there is no such thing as a good traffic day in Washington D.C. Now, coming from the south, where we were driving through Fredericksburg, Virginia, uh, I believe that is part of the highway to hell. And so, um, it's horrible. It's horrible. And so we got up there. We got to our hotel room and. Uh, Staying in a hotel room is a challenging endeavor for our family uh, because my son draws superpower from a hotel room. It's like it's it, it's worse than him drinking five cokes. He is just it's like the ultimate sugar rush, and so uh, he goes nuts. And so I mean I I'm not I'm not exaggerating. It's just at one point I just have to wrap my arms around him to hold him still until he just crashes. He just loves being in a hotel room. So we try and avoid it as much as possible uh, because it's just, it's crazy. It's crazy. So that was a big commitment for us, a big commitment for us. But then we got to our hotel room, we went to dinner, we got settled in, and then we got a phone call from the company. The weather's not looking very good for tomorrow. And so Heather's like, well, we're not canceling, are we? They said, well, we, and she goes, we're already here. We're already here. And I said, okay, well, we'll check in the morning to see what it's like. Morning comes. Not looking good. Overcast. A little drizzly. And then we got the phone call. Canceled. Canceled. So as much as I would love to tell you what a flying lesson is like, we have uh, not yet found the time in the last year to reschedule that lesson. How many of you have ever had your heart set on something and then been hugely disappointed when it didn't happen? How do you deal with disappointment? How do you deal with disappointment? Everybody deals with it a little differently. We made a day of it. We went down to the uh, Natural History Museum in Washington, D.C. and had fun that way. Uh, we'll still get in the flying lesson at some point, hopefully before the end of this summer is actually our our goal is to get, you know, just a year and a half. Here's the great thing. Presents are presents no matter when you use them, right? And so that flying lesson will eventually come, and it will still be a gift for my 40th birthday, even if I'm 42 before it happens. I just used a gift card this week to Best Buy that Heather got me for Christmas. You know, I, I can hold on to things for a long time. We'll get there. But when we hold on to disappointment, it really 
changes the trajectory of our life. And disappointment is a hard thing to let go of, isn't it? Sometimes we're disappointed in people. And that becomes the definition of our relationship. Sometimes we're, we're disappointed in our job. Oh, you dis- I like my job. I'm not groaning about my job, but, but I've had jobs. I, after college, I briefly worked at Walmart. I did not enjoy that job. Not that there's anything wrong with working at Walmart. I did, the worst job I ever had, I worked for a temporary man, uh, manpower, the temper service, testing CD players for the 1998 edition of the Eddie Bauer Ford Explorer. Sounds exciting, doesn't it? You just throw a CD in, you listen to some music. That's not what it was. You, you threw a CD in, you looked at a stereoscope to make sure it was playing, and then you pulled on a little clip. Then you put it back in the bag, stuck it back in the box. Do that for eight hours a day. Yeah, I did not look forward to going to work. Have you been disappointed in people? Disappointed in your job? You ever been disappointed in God? When he didn't give you what you were expecting. When something didn't work the way you thought it should. How do you deal with disappointment? You know, a lot of times, we kind of get the cart before the horse. We get disappointed, and we come up with our own solution. We come up with our own fix. We decide this is the best way to do it. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But oftentimes when we're operating from a position of hurt, when we're operating from a position of discouragement, when we're operating from a position of disappointment, a lot of times the solution we come up with just makes us feel better. It doesn't actually fix anything. Have you ever worked with a disgruntled coworker? I'm going to quit this job. I can't take it anymore. Do you have another job lined up? No, nope, but I'm done. That is the proverbial cutting off your nose to spite your face. Right? They've made me upset just one too many times, so I'm done with them. I'm not going to talk to them anymore. They cut off family members. God, it's the last time I'm going to trust you for something. I'm going to take care of it on my own. It happens all the time, doesn't it? Things don't go quite the way we think they should at church. Service doesn't go the way we think it should. The church isn't doing enough to meet my needs. God is disappointing me. And so what do we do? We come up with our own fix. Our own fix. And rarely is our fix as good as God's fix. I would dare say our fix is never as good as God's fix. That's how we get the cart before the horse is when we try and fix something without asking God, how do you want us to do this? That's why when we talk about vision and moving forward, I'm moving deliberately and slow. Because there's all sorts of great things that we could be doing. But I want to make sure we're doing what God wants us to do. Nehemiah was in a very similar situation. If you want to open your Bibles today, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. It's page 496 in my Bible. I'm not sure which one it is in yours, but if you're curious, that's where it's at. Nehemiah 
So Nehemiah chapter 1, this is the only place we're going to be today. Here's how the book of, the book of Nehemiah starts. It says, in the, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the, in the month of Kislev, in the, the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The walls of Jerusalem, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. What do you do when the walls are down? You know, if you look at the world today, if you look at the church today, in a lot of ways, it feels as though maybe the walls are down. The church has been painted as very evil. The church has been painted as unloving. How many of you have uh, felt like maybe society has taken a big turn away from God? I was reading uh, something this week. In the 50s, those that identified as having no religious affiliation, 7% of the country identified as having no religious affiliation. The most recent poll that was taken, 32% identifies having no religious affiliation. They say it's the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S. A third of the country says they have no religious affiliation. In a lot of ways, the walls are down. The gates have been burned. A third of this country. We can look at a church and we say that it's not growing. We can look at a church and say we're not meeting the needs of people. We're not doing this. And we can look at it and say the walls are down. And the question is, what do you do when the walls are down? It's easy to become discouraged, isn't it? If you're on Facebook, I'm sure you've seen some of the uh, religious posts that just, it is, it, it's, it, they're, they're, they're lamenting the loss of yesterday. They are just constantly, the barrage of society is a challenge. It is a problem. And we live in a godless society. We actually, this, the culture that we live in now in the United States, we, uh, we call it a post-Christian culture. Because there's so many people that have never been to a church service. They've never attended any religious affiliation at all. Not, they, they didn't even go with their parents because their parents didn't go. It started years and years ago that people quit going to church. So what do you do? A third of the country has no religious affiliation. I read a stat yesterday, or Friday, that said 8% of the country has never been to a religious service of any kind. Not even saying that they don't have a religious affiliation. They've never been to a Christian religious service of any kind. Could you imagine that? Even if you weren't a committed Christian, even if you weren't a Christian, you still went to church on Christmas and Easter. 
and Mother's Day when mom asked. That's not the culture we live in anymore. What do you do? Nehemiah was presented with this question. And I think Nehemiah's got a lot of examples and, and lessons for us of what do you do when the walls are down? Here's what Nehemiah said in, in verse 4. It says, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. I sat down and wept. That stood out just so profound to me. Sitting down, actually in Jewish culture, it was part of the mourning process. The mourners would sit on a low stool for seven days or more. And they would grieve the loss. Nehemiah felt this incredible burden for the condition of Jerusalem. He also felt the incredible burden because this was the third time that this issue had been brought up about the walls of Jerusalem. The, student, the, 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 the children in exile. The walls being down. Nehemiah felt the burden of the loss. How many of you, as I was talking about the, the, the change of culture, the change of society, you remember what the world used to be like? Even 15 years ago, 20 years ago. How many of you grieve that loss? You feel it. Nehemiah felt it. And it would be easy to look at it and say, well, it's a goner. There's nothing we can do. There's nothing I can do to change culture and society. There's nothing I can do to fix anything. Nehemiah could have very easily done that because he felt the burden. But that's not what Nehemiah did. Continuing on in verse 4, it says, For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. What did he do? He says, I mourned, fasted, and prayed before the God of heaven. Now, a lot of us, what do we, when we see a problem, what do we do? We complain, nitpick, and uh, we, 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 make a, we make an issue, don't we? We complain, we nitpick, we grumble. This isn't right, this isn't right, this isn't right. We see the problem. A lot, a lot of people are good bird dogs. You know what a bird dog does, right? They spot the bird. There it is. They see the problem. A lot of people are good at doing that. That's the problem. Nehemiah would have been easy for him to say, God, the walls are down. And just complain about the walls being down. But that's not what Nehemiah did. Nehemiah mourned. Now, Understand, this is, when he says he mourned, it was like a ritualistic mourning. This wasn't he just sat around and felt sad. This wasn't he just sat around and, and remembered when it used to be the good old days. That's not what it was. It was a ritualistic mourning for several days. You know, and, and mourning was a biblical concept. You know, it could have been seven days or more. Daniel, when he was mourning, he mourned for three weeks. We can mourn the loss. But what else did Nehemiah do? He fasted and prayed. Let me ask this question. 
when you see a problem in society, when you see a problem within a church, what do you do? Do you bird dog it? Do you point it out? Do you pray and fast? Do you bring it before God? Or do you sit around and go, somebody should fix this. Somebody should do something about this. Nehemiah, he took the problem the only place it could be solved. Took it to God. He took it to God. Now, I know you're not like this, but some churches have people in it that think of their job as a professional complainer. Or they're a professional listener to the other people that are professional complainers. And then they elect a representative. They're like, all right, you're the ones that gets to go talk about it. And then all of a sudden, you've got people are saying this. People are saying that. And they're not really saying it to anybody that can do anything about it. Where should we take it? Take it to God. Pray. Mourn. Fast. That's what he did. We don't groan and blame. We pray and fast. And we ask for God's face in a problem. We ask for God's help in a situation. We ask for God to intervene. And here's what Nehemiah did. Here was Nehemiah's prayer. Nehemiah's prayer, starting in verse 5. Now understand, this was after days of already praying and fasting. Days of prayer and fasting. This wasn't just a knee-jerk reaction to the bad report that the walls were down. This was after days of ritualistically mourning, fasting, and praying. Here's what he did. It says, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps His covenant of love with those who love Him and His commandments, let your ears be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayers of your servant is praying before you and night for your day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. What's the first thing that he did? The first thing that Nehemiah did was he interceded for the people of Israel. I'm praying. Your servant is praying for you day before you, day and night. Verses 5 and the first part of 6, for the children of Israel. He was praying for other people affected by this issue. He interceded on their behalf. Then, continuing on to verse 6, it says, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands and decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. He interceded for people. And then he repented. Then he repented. Oftentimes we look to exterior causes for problems in our lives. The first place we should start is looking at ourselves. The first place we should start. And that's what Nehemiah did, didn't he? He repented. He, he, 
He didn't say, forgive your people, those loathsome heathens who've walked away from you. No, no. He said, including myself and my father's family. How many of you have ever heard it? You've listened to a good message on repentance. You go, I know somebody that needs to hear that. Yeah, it might be you. Oh, that's meddling. Oh, stop it, stop it. Don't, I'm, I'm doing good, right? I'm doing, I'm, I'm doing all right. Don't uh, point anything at me. Nehemiah, it would have been easy to say, your wayward children, look how they've turned from you. But no, he saw himself as part of the challenge. It wasn't just them. It was us. We were part of the solution and problem. Moving forward, when we see in verse 8, it says, Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as the dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. So he went from interceding to repenting, to remembering God's promises. He's called you by name. You are a child of God. You are a chosen people. You are forgiven by the blood of Christ. We are a people destined to reach this world. We are a people called by God to share the love of Christ with those around us. We have promises. When we see a church that hasn't grown for a while, we can oftentimes lament the issue and say, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. Here's the question. Are we remembering the promises that God has given us? Are we remembering the promises of what God has done in our lives? Are we remembering who God has called us to be. We are called to be victorious people. We are called to be overcomers. We are called by the blood of the Lamb to share the love of Christ with those around us. We are called. And when He goes before us, who can stand against us? No one. He interceded for others. He repented. He remembered God's promises. And then what's the last thing he did? He says, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayers of this, of this, this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. He asked for God's blessing. He asked for God's blessing. This is why vision is so important. But the vision has to come from God. The vision has to come from God. I can come up with all sorts of great things that we could be doing, but that doesn't mean we should be doing it. We have to understand that God has a purpose for you. God has a purpose for you. God has a purpose for our church. God has a purpose for our church. This is the thing we have to remember first, though. That God wants to do a work in you before He does a work through you. God wants to do a work in you 
before he does a work through you. That's why Nehemiah's prayer was so important. He interceded for others. He repented himself. He didn't just repent for other people. He repented for himself. He wants to do a work in you. Really, God wants to do a work in you individually before he does a work through us corporately. God wants us to purify ourselves in his presence. The, the thing that happened during worship, where I, I shared First Peter, it really builds towards this. It's actually how I planned on closing the message. But I felt it was a, a right time to do it then. We can so easily hang on to things for years. We can hold on to hurts. We can hold on to past things that have happened. So-and-so did this to me. So-and-so did that to me. This pastor here did this. This pastor here said this. You know, pastors are people. They make mistakes. People get hurt in the church. We don't, we're, none of us are infallible. Church people, they hurt other people, right? And we can hold on to it. Or we can take it before God. None of us are perfect. We can pretend like we are. I got it all together. I mean, Nehemiah was in a position actually of pretty good influence. What's that last thing he says? I was cupbearer to the king. He had access to the king on a daily basis. And he could have used that influence to do something, which we see he does. But where did he start? He started in front of God. And he started with himself. He started with himself. See, when we look at it, it must always start with me before it becomes we. It always starts with me. Because I'm an imperfect person. I'm an imperfect person. I'm not judging anybody here. It's not my job. But I do know people. We all have areas of our lives that we hold on to. That we keep from God. We've had hurts from years past that we hold on to. You say, Pastor Spencer, why would anybody hold on to a past hurt? Because after a while, it starts defining you. And it becomes comfortable. Because there comes a place and a point in life when the things that you've held on to, or the beliefs that you've held on to of this is who I am, this is the right way to feel, there comes a point where it becomes more uncomfortable to grow past that. After a while, your problems kind of become like a warm blanket you can wrap yourself in because they're your problems. Same thing with sin. 
our sin so easily entangles us and it ensnares us. On Wednesday nights, we've been talking about the uh, gifts of the Spirit, or the living in the Spirit of the series. We talk about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. We talk about all of them. I think self-control is one of the hardest. Because what's it require? It requires you to be really, really honest with yourself, doesn't it? And acknowledge, I'm not doing well here. I haven't given this to God. I haven't consecrated myself. Perfection's never the goal. But are you giving God space in your life so that you can be transformed? I've quoted it many times and I'll probably quote it many more times. George Barna did a study and said that the average Christian stops growing after seven years of salvation. Seven years. In this case, that is not the number of perfection. We all have space to go. We all have things in our lives. And if we want to move forward as a church, we have to be like Nehemiah. What do you do when the wall's down? Be like Nehemiah. He took it before God first. And he started with himself. He started with his own sin. He started with his own issues. And then he prayed for God's blessing and moving forward. If we're going to move forward as a church, we have to start with me before we look at we. We have to. If we don't, we're just destined to repeat the same things over and over and over again.